0: Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the H.P. Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres.
1: And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies and the editor of the new peplum from mcfarland michelle and i co-edited horror literature from gothic to postmodern also from mcfarland for today's episode we'll be discussing two short stories from nick Mamatos's edited collection wonder and glory forever published by dover publications in late november at the end of the episode we'll share upcoming events uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about what Wonder and Glory Forever is. Um, it is a themed, edited collection of Lovecraftian short stories. And we we like uh, theme collections on this podcast. We've actually read a couple so far. Um, earlier this year, we read uh, from Dark Regions Press, uh, Return of the uh, oh, Great Old Ones, which was a post-apocalyptic Lovecraftian writing. Uh, more recently... Uh, we read Swords Against Cthulhu, which is Sword and Sorcery meets uh, Lovecraft stuff. In, uh, in our archives, we also have some uh, others that we've tackled as well. But what is Wonder and Glory Forever? Uh, the, the subtitle says Awe Inspiring Lovecraftian Fiction. So the theme for this collection is, well, awe inspiring. Well, what is that? You know, that sounds kind of, you know, against the grain of what we typically associate Lovecraftian writing with. Well, uh, editor uh, Nick Momentos kind of lays out a little blueprint of what this anthology is supposed to kind of accomplish in his foreword. In his foreword, he describes successor Lovecraftian authors. They tend to focus on, like, you know, inescapable doom, or they take the more humorous routes of Lovecraftian writing. He also describes Lovecraftian fiction as a type of cult fiction, that ardent followers, by partaking in it, they experience a a sliver of the sublime. You know, cult activities, after all, offer something that other indulgences don't. But this leads to a scenario where some of Lovecraft's other interesting, important, or, you know, other elements, they're overlooked or ignored altogether in other texts. I'll give an example. For example, in Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu is overtly described as uh, bloated corpulence. Yet, how many artistic depictions of Cthulhu actually depict him this way? There are far more uh, pictures of Cthulhu looking dominating and muscular than, well, fat. (laughs) Um, Well, Mamatas has clued in on a different uh, kind of missing aspect of Lovecraft's writing that's absent in newer texts texts, and that's the feeling of awe, the sublime, the marvelous, and the eternal. Mamatos hints that one of the reasons for this is that it's hard to express this feeling. It's much more easier and perhaps economically viable to focus on the doom and gloom or to take a, a humorous approach. It's also more accessible to readers. It is easier to make readers feel afraid than it is to awestruck them. So, I guess uh, first question, just kind of reflecting back on some of the, the podcast episodes we've done, is there any other stories that you can think of that we've read up to this point that, that kind of uh, inspire that feeling of awe? Oh, you know, this is the universe in its entirety. It's incomprehensible, it is huge, it's sublime. A- anyone that you can think of, because it's a valid question, it's kind of a hard thing.
0: Yeah, it was. When uh, we were talking about this off the podcast, I really had to take uh, a few moments to think about who might fit within this question. And thinking over the stories that we've read this year, uh, one comes to mind, but more from a point of kind of a microcosm of the cosmic horror that we are familiar with uh, through Lovecraft. And that would be John Langham's mirror fishing. I think his visual uh, narrative of uh, the Glacky or Glacky-esque monster underneath the water, underneath the reflected uh, mirror, I I think that does quite a bit to inspire a sense of awe, at least initially through our main character. I think his name was Paul. Um, You know, in part because it is not a familiar world to him but he's also a teenager so i feel that we get kind of that that double um immersion of not only the the young voice of the narrator but also the experience of langham to write such uh compelling visuals um i don't think it's incidental that um he uh had that in his uh, writing. I read uh, he did an interview uh, recently in which he talked about how uh, where Tales, which we'll talk about as the second story, how that was an influential story for him, and that remains on one of like his top five uh, great horror stories. Um, so I think uh, that would be my story. What about you, Nick?
1: I'm thinking back to uh, Tim Wagoner "Sara Road from The uh, Return of the Old Ones. Um, we discuss that when it's, you know, a, a mom and her uh, son who's just come back from the doctor and it's not been diagnosed very well. You know, they're just chilling on the freeway and all of a sudden, you know, just like in one of the stories we're about to be reading, the, the sky turns terrible, you know, it fills full of eyes and it turns kind of like snot yellow. You know, all the cars merge together into these giant ziggurats. You know, the glass, not the glass, the, the grass turns to like um, shards of nefarious, you know, critters. There's things flying about. And the way it's uh, conveyed is, you know, it's it's really the slice of, you know, unreality that's come out of nowhere that, you know, um, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't have the text in front of me, but, you know, there's there's an actual sentence in there. You know, where the main character is like, you know, trying to comprehend like, you know, she's seeing things that, you know, shouldn't be seen, that there's something bigger than her out there. And she's just, a, you know, a speck in it all. Um, But it all happens, you know, just on a, a freeway drive in the afternoon that all of a sudden, bam, you know, the world isn't just simply turned upside down. They get everyone gets a glimpse into an, an unreality. And it's, you know, it's it's both horrific, but at the same time, it is, you know, awe. Some in the, the true sense of the word of of you know something that's almost incomprehensible. Um so we'll be looking at two short stories from Wonder and Glory Forever that fall into this uh camp of installing awe, but these two short stories they also share another theme together, uh a theme of overcoming a Cartesian way of understanding reality and overcoming like large, oftentimes unfathomable distances. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at Erica L. Uh, Satifka's You'll Never Be the Same and Fred Chappell's Weird Tales. Short story number one You'll Never Be the Same by Erica Satifka. Far in the future, mankind has achieved the ability to travel the stars by a process called planoforming, which involves crossing different dimensions and using psychic abilities. The process also calls for a go-captain, an individual who consults lock sheets and helps navigate the dimensions, and the stop-captain, a non-telepathic individual who keeps everything and everyone else sane. The stop-captain in this story has been stop-captaining for about 20 years. On this particular voyage, something has gone wrong. The sky inside the ship is malevolent, and the planoforming crew are speaking in tongues. The go-captain brushes the stop-captain's concerns off initially, but eventually the stop-captain incapacitates the go-captain with a punch to the face and takes over his duties, something he has no clue on how to do. The stop-captain is successful, though, and saves the passengers of the ship and is able to navigate to where they need to go. However, it comes at a great cost. As he is recuperating in a hospital bed, the stop captain recalls the terrible visions of truth that goes on in the dimensions that the planiforming uh goes across. Ancient, horrible deities that are very much alive. Cthulhu doesn't need to rise from his oceanic prison on Earth. He and his ilk are already risen in these plains. So, Michelle, before before I ask you your thoughts on the story, I, I think we should uh point out that you actually kind of have a, a weird roundabout way uh, of connecting to the story.
0: Um, yeah, I wrote the foreword actually for Whispers from the Abyss, Volume 2, which is published by the same group that did Volume 1.
1: So I think that's kind of cool just to kind of put that out there. But yeah, the O-1 Publishing Group published two of these uh, anthologies, Whispers from the Abyss 1 and Whispers of the Abyss 2. They were collections of uh, not really microfiction, but but shorter than normal short stories. I think the uh, the idea was to do Lovecraftian horror, but in bite-sized commuter details for that on-the-go crowd. And... Uh, This story originally appeared in Volume 1, and Michelle was invited to do the introduction to Volume 2. So, very cool. But, aside from that little bit of trivia, thoughts? What did you think of You Will Never Be the Same?
0: Well, given the fact that um, I've edited a collection of space horror uh, essays on uh, space horror films and the fact that this story has a lot of visual similarities to a number of films that were discussed in my uh, my book, including Event Horizon, yes. Europa Report, um, and even Solaris, I found um, that I was able to connect very quickly and easily uh, with this story. So um, I have other, other um, more detailed uh, points with regards to the space horror aspect. But generally, I thought it was a, a good good story. It was short. It was kind of like in there, get it done, and then right back <laughs> out, um, which which plays to uh, Mamata's uh, comment about, you know, filling in the gaps, but that it also speaks volumes. And um, I'm sure we'll talk more about that in, in a moment. Uh, what did you think of it?
1: I loved it just because it, it totally reads like Event Horizon. Um, it has a lot in common with Event Horizon. It also has a lot in common with uh, some other kind of, uh, you know, you gave some uh, film examples, Europa Report, Solaris. Uh, some might even say Warhammer 40K just because it has that. I've never played Warhammer 40K. I don't have a million dollars to <laughs> collect the miniatures. But in that universe, uh, in order to to go faster than light, you know your ships have to enter something called the warp and the warp is full of well monsters. And so um, I, I could see uh, this having a Warhammer 40k uh, type aspect of it as well. So I liked it. I mean, it wasn't gory or shocking like Event horizon, but you know it's it's a very truncated, short and sweet and to the point event horizon type story and I really like that. So, like like you alluded to in in all these uh stories in Wonder and Glory Forever, Nick Mamatos provides a, a really short introduction of what it accomplishes, why he picked it out, and he does allude to that this is a, a fill in the blinks uh type of story. So I guess my first question is, is for this story, do we need more? Or is what's presented here satisfactory enough? Is, is this truly a case of less is more and there's sufficient stuff here? Or should this have been a more fleshed out story?
0: Um, well, I would say that there is enough here. However, I do think that having more context, basically what the reader brings to the story, excuse me, uh, the story, such as being familiar with Event Horizon and many of the other space horror films that are out there that are kind of conducive to this play with reality and space travel, I think would would actually enhance the story. One of the things that I haven't read and what is mentioned in the introduction is uh, Cord Wainer-Smith, uh, a writer whose um, stories are often set in the distant future. Um, I think that having some knowledge of his writing, that cult uh, fiction that Nick Mamatas also speaks about in his intro, I think would have been helpful here. And I think, Nick, that, that plays to the planoforming that you actually found in some of uh, Smith's other stories or one particular other story.
1: You could read the story as is, but if you've read Cordwain or Smith's The Game of Rat and Dragon, that story actually introduces what Planoforming forming is, navigating around in space, and they're very similar in both this story and that story um, you, by using telepathy, except in Smith's story, they use cats to help out because cats are so quick. Um, but it, the story does stand on its own. I mean, it has things like, what is a pin lighter? You know, it's not defined. You know, what exactly does the stop captain do? I mean, it's kind of hinted, you know, he, he keeps people, like, in line, but, like, what are those actual duties? You know, if you were to process flowchart it, <laughs> or a side pocket, I guess, <laughs> um, what what would they be, you know? And what was the catalyst to even start the story in the first place? I mean, they're not there, but the story has enough contextualization that you can fill in those blanks. Like, I don't know what a pin lighter is, but I know, you know, it's definitely a crewman who's in a plane forming chamber. There are obviously uh, support people to get the, you know, tasks done, and that's all you really need to know. So, uh, yeah, it, I, it definitely a less is more type story that it works. Uh, but if you bring in... The paratext to it, in this case, Smith's *The Game of Rat and Dragon*, you definitely get so much more. And I think, I think in Nick's uh, introduction, he doesn't overtly say you need to read Corwin or Smith to understand this, but he kind of nudges that you do.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I feel that in this story, um, I would have my experience with the story would have been greatly enhanced because. Yeah, I mean, you. Um, the author drops a lot of terms that you have no context other than by reading the story you kind of get a sense of like, oh, okay, pin lighter, I envision uh, somebody sitting in there, you know, a telepath with a lot of uh, like a helmet on their head with lots of wires coming out of it um so that way you can you know capture those brain waves and uh navigate through this um you know dangerous uh world or between dimensions so yeah yeah i think that that definitely would have helped i i like
1: the lo- uh, the event horizon vibe in the story but the story also has uh some Subtle touches of humor, and it's mostly conveyed through the stop captain because he's, he's very prim and proper and very protocol-driven, but there's this exchange towards the end after basically the crew goes Event Horizon insane, you know, they're basically a couple steps away from having a blood orgy, but the line goes, One of the women had taken off her clothes, and then the stop captain clapped a hand over his eyes. This was most indecent. There is something very British humor about that, that, uh, it's that this was most, of course it's the indecent, you don't have to tell us that, but you do tell us that, so it's, it's sort of kind of underscoring the, uh, the, the, I don't want to say silliness, but kind of unrolliness of what's going on. This is definitely not right, but again, because, uh, the stop captain, he's about to enter a fish-out-of-water scenario. He's going to be, basically become the go-captain here in a couple minutes. Um, and uh, it's just a nice little humorous element uh, that, that's in the story that, again, maybe, maybe the stop captain is very British and very prim, proper, protocol-driven. He definitely has tea. I know it.
0: <laughs> do you think uh, that moment takes away from the larger story, or do you think it works? I think it works. There's
1: some other plays with language uh in the story like you know when it's when uh the character is recalling looking at you know uh the gods of the different dimensions and it says oh god that face the face. There there's these this kind of little embellishments in the story that they're not necessarily plot driven but they're aesthetical choices and i would say that this is an aesthetical choice that probably lends more to describing the stop captain and how he operates because we're not we're not given very much about what these characters are what they do you know again fill in the blanks in fact um the story, there's no proper names. No one has a name in the story. The passengers don't. The stop captain doesn't. The pin lighters don't. Um. No one has a name. They only have what their duties are. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to be a little silly point. It reminds me of a an Uwe Bull film called In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale. Uh, in that movie, uh, Jason, Jason Statham's character is called Farmer. And someone asks why he goes by that. And the answer is, People become what they do. And the line is not very profane. I think it's trying to be, but it falls flat. But, yeah, it's a line of dialogue from an Uwe Boll film that's very applicable to this story. These characters, they are, they're faceless, they're nameless. They are their duties. What those duties are, we have we have a slight comprehension of it. Sort of like... In all these awe-inspiring stories, we only have a slight glimpse of how the universe works. And, you know, to get any more definition of that is to drive us mad, or maybe we won't even be able to appreciate it in all its grandeur and glory. And here it is just being enacted in a more, well, I want to say mundane fashion, such as, what is your name and what do you do? I guess the big question for Wondering Glory Forever is, against Mamatas' criteria, does this story actually instill a sense of awe?
0: Well, I think it does. And the reason being is that the concept of space travel and exploration, which in our world has continued to capture our interests, and I think it is in our nature to investigate and explore our surroundings— and I think that that is an awe-inspiring uh, point to humankind. Uh, if you look at NASA, how we'll stop—we we watch, you know, the space shuttle takeoffs, uh, SpaceX, and their latest uh, ship that they've been working on.
1: Are landing like probes on
0: comets
1: and bringing samples back? Yeah. I mean, this is this is big stuff people yeah i mean it doesn't sound like in our day-to-day of waking up and go to our eight to five and you know coming home and eating ice cream afterwards it fits into it but Mm -hmm. on a big scale of us as a species this is big
0: yeah i mean uh just segwaying for a moment if you think to the the universal calendar you know we uh, humankind is just one teeny little speck and so I think that part of the the exploration is that there's a thrill in discovering what is not known. And that creates a sense of awe in our minds for the knowledge, our physical body, the adrenaline, and emotionally, that sense of achievement, um, that sense of, in a way, wonder and glory. Um, one cannot gain knowledge without some amount of personal danger. And this author explores that balance that balance sheet between space travel uh very well in the store, story which i think results in that awe but also that flip side of the danger the fact that we have characters that straddle a fine line between life and madness and death and i think that that marries that awe that sense of awe with the with the traditional concept of lunacy madness and ultimately, death from that experience of gaining that knowledge
1: I think one thing that we kind of tend to de appreciate is the awesomeness of space. I mean we've had you know decades of filmmaking where space travels portrayed very leisurely you know you can just get into your rocket ship and be on the moon in a matter of minutes you know the idea that there's aliens out there all they have to do is get in their ufos and then click a button and you know they're here you know movies like star wars and star star trek's a little bit better about this but still the idea that you know traversing space is just really no different than you know uh driving around um i think uh there's a, a line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where, you know, Douglas Adams says something like, space is big, really, really big. You know, you just can't believe how big it is. And we, we take that kind of for granted because um, um, we can't comprehend it. The moon is right there. You know, it's within our eyesight. It looks big. But to travel to the moon takes effort. It takes time and it's, it's far away. It's not like an Italio Calvino story where it's just brushing up against the earth here. Um, and I, I think this is a story that helps kind of de-romanticizes that. The universe, not only is it big, it's empty. You know, there's so much emptiness between things that, you know, even if there is life out there, we'll probably never, ever see it. Because again, you know, even if you were to go faster than lie, it would take thousands of years to even get around. And, and hence, you know, stories like this, where they, they have to try to find a workaround, you know, by entering other dimensions and stuff to even make this, uh, fathomable. So I think a story is, is an attempt to kind of demystify that, uh, to bring that a little bit back into, you know, here's the awesomeness of space. Well, here's the awesomeness of what it takes to overcome the challenges of space. Um, and, and that's all done procedurally through this, uh, you know, the stop captains, go captains, lock sheets, plano forming, all that stuff. I, I think what really sells it, the awesomeness of, there is even more out there is when the stop captain is, is in the hospital and he's recalling the visions that he saw just by putting on the, the, the go captains hat and seeing what really transpires back there. Um, I quote, he remembered the lamentations of horned madmen as they danced about a fire whose smoke seemed to spell out something of the greatest importance, remembered the grinding of an inhuman voice below a sheet of ice, and in my favorite, pleading for mercy at a tribunal with thousands of other men and women facing the backs of iron gods who never turned, never reacted, until one of them shifted slightly to the side and, oh God, the face the face. You know, this that line, like, word-wise, it makes sense, but, like, like, what is an iron god? You know, it's not a statue, and it's probably not literally a giant made out of iron, and the words by themselves and even together, they kind of make sense, but visually, it's just outside our comprehension of what an iron god is, unless you play a lot of Minecraft, and you probably think it's a golem, but it's just these little imageries right here that they're accessible but outside of our reach. Uh, and I I think that's kind of one of the more money shot elements of the story of trying to convey something that, you know, putting into words something that we can't comprehend. And that to me is, you know, awesomeness of what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point that you make, Nick. And you know, when I got to that point in the story, I'll be honest, I immediately was thinking of Dante's Inferno, the nine line, nine levels of hell. I was even, you know, recalling the Egyptian mythologies and, you know, traveling to the underworld and having all these other, you know, people that are all being judged. And the fact that how, how minute we are in the world is what I took from that, that that we are not even acknowledged, we're not reacted to, um, and as far as w- we can ascertain from that line is you know the God could have you know shifted to fart or something, and <laughs> you happen to see a you know a small part of his face or something. but the fact is is we're inconsequential, and I mean, I think that's what what ultimately. You know, being out in space, you you are alone. You are by yourself. I mean, we 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 see this theme in Europa Report. I think very well, where you know they're out there, and you know they have to rely on themselves and each other, and eventually, you know, just down to one. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but um, I think that what. Works really well, like you said, is the demystification of space travel without having to dwell into the mechanics behind it and why Heart it should sci-fi. the hard science behind it. We this is a step back. I think what also works well and kind of coexists because this was one of my points is the hero's journey and to, and to not have anybody named the fact that we are able to quickly identify with the stop captain. I think we all have a sense of, wow, I wish I was the go captain. I wish that I had that responsibility or that I was seen as the hero. You know, and there's, there's all the connotations that come with the hero's journey and the fact that our stop captain is not really, you know, an expectant hero, but he steps up to the plate. Um so I think that's a, an interesting aspect to the story as well.
1: When we mention the, the giant iron god that shifts just slightly, you know, slightly enough, that leads to, oh, the face, the face. I mean, you can't really see a full face if you're shifting slightly. It makes me think of long ago when we read Under the Pyramids, where I, I think— um, Houdini, or you know, whoever is the protagonist of that story, like sees like a toe of a god, (laughs) and that's enough to like kind of freak him out. Mm -hmm. Um, it just kind of made me think of that. Um, I think wrapping up on my end, if I had to point a downside to this story out, is it does something I didn't think it was going to do because it was it was so successful on all these other fronts. It actually ends, you know, a couple lines. It actually says Cthulhu Raya you know, the 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 line that every other, you know, Lovecraftian, you know, pistish has out there. And I I'm, I'm a little sad that it went that route. I mean the again, it's the most identifiable, you know, Cthulhu line out there. I just felt like the story had done so much on its own that, you know, um Cthulhu, he's already here in space, you know, as I mentioned in the plot synopsis, he's not waiting in the water anymore, waiting for the stars to be right, he's right there, so it, this seems kind of like a, a silly line to throw in, I would have almost just admitted it, and it would have been a little stronger because the author did such a, a well enough job showing, you know, here, here's the great old ones, they're right there, the guy just saw them, <laughs> you know, I don't need to underscore that any any further, it's, that's like my only like real complaint about the story other than that it was uh i get very short very sweet a little bit of filling in the blanks but it doesn't take away from uh the big pow um you know a kind of a you know big bang you start with a small little pinhole and you get into something bigger here's a small story that delivers in uh troves, i think
0: mm hmm yeah, there was one other uh, section in the story. I think it was uh, closer to the to the beginning, where one of the pin lighters uh, kind of is you know uh, regurgitating um, you know gibberish that you know is obviously Cthulhu based. Um, I would, I, I didn't mind that it was in there, but I do appreciate when a story is very original and doesn't rely on certain tropes and this one is not a, a make break for me as you know a, for you it, it was a little more of a, a downside to this story small I get small
1: downside the, the story is obviously leveraging Cordwainer Smith H.P. Lovecraft
0: is just I just felt like it was doing it uniquely except for that one sentence <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Um, and on that note, we're going to take a short break and listen to a little bit of Gustav Holst, The Planets, Saturn, The Bringer of Old Age, before continuing our discussion of the second story. Story number 2, Weird Tales by Fred Chapel. This story opens in Cleveland, in a Cleveland apartment in 1922. H.P. Lovecraft is sitting in an armchair with a cat sleeping peacefully in his lap. Readers are soon introduced to an extremely inebriated poet, Hart Crane, and a short time later, poet Samuel Loveman. Chapel segues in the story to discuss each writer's narrative style and, more importantly, how each writer's prevailing mythos has been incorporated into their writing endeavors, before introducing us to Sterling Croydon. Croydon is a recluse who is not only our only fictitious character, he seems to be the most scholastically inclined with his studies in mathematics, physics, anthropology, and a dash of poetry. Personality-wise, Chapel situates Croydon and Lovecraft similarly awkward in social interactions. In fact, Croydon shies away from meeting Lovecraft when the opportunity arises. And further in the story, we learn that Croydon is actually critical of Lovecraft, believing that he needs to be more responsible in handling his cosmic theories. Croydon withdraws further from society and makes the singularly exception when it comes to allowing Crane to visit and discuss the recluse's theories. At one point, the conversations land on space travel. Crane initially thinks that Croydon's interests would lie with the Amazon tribes, but in fact, Croydon feels the pull of Antarctica. Crane moves to New York shortly thereafter, and on one of Lubman's monthly visits to Croydon's apartment, one floor above his own, Loveman encounters very cold temperatures in the hallway leading to the recluse's abode. After much effort, Loveman is able to open Croydon's door, and the visage is unbelievable. Croydon is sitting at his desk, frozen to death by the harsh southern environment. The space between the apartment door and Croydon begins to stretch and pull Croydon further away. As the space grows, Loveman can see Croydon's skin being ripped from his body, exposing his blood, frozen instantly before also being pulled away, and soon only the skeleton remains. Prior to Crane's death in 1932, Chapel hints that Crane may have been the only person to know Croydon's secret knowledge of space travel. Did he share it with Lovecraft, or did he take his own life to gallantly protect the others in the group? Nick, let's start with you. What are your initial impressions of this story?
1: Ooh, so initial, when I first started reading the short story, I was a little intimidated just because I didn't know the characters. I know Lovecraft, but I didn't know Crane or Loveman or Croydon. In fact, I actually thought Croydon was a real person, which We'll talk about here in a second. And I thought this might be one of those stories that was catering to, well, if you haven't read all the Lovecraft's letters and correspondences, you're not going to get anything out of this. Kind of like the prior story where, well, that would stood on its own. You didn't need to read Corrine or Smith to understand it. But if you did, it just helped. and added a little dimension to it. This story seemed to start off with its more... <clears throat> You know, It took a very realistic approach, very matter-of-fact of, you know, this day at this time, this event occurred with these real people. So I was actually very intimidated going in that I wasn't going to get the full effect of this. Uh, once you find out that, you know, um, <laughs> Sterling Croydon is a fictitious character, and this is all kind of, you know, peppering of real things to actually make kind of, you know, a weird tale, pun intended, to go with the title um way way better um I actually really liked <laughs> Croydon as a character even though he doesn't really do anything except for be reclusive and really into math um I just did the whole sequence of you know opening the door his room is now in Antarctica uh definitely out of left field wasn't uh, anticipating any of that and me not knowing the other poets was just kind of inconsequential. What's, what's important to know is they, they write weird stuff, uh, they're all kind of groupies together, and they all kind of get along, and if, you know, they all kind of share the same truth of what their reality is. And, and that's what kind of Croydon exposes in a weird sort of way. So, so yeah, my, my initial apprehension going in wore off, and I really wound up liking the story. And for you?
0: Uh, for me, I also actually really like this story. I was, like you, not familiar with Crane or Loveman or Croydon and was uh, actually a little sad to find out that uh, Croydon wasn't a real person, um, but I understand why.
1: But, but it's a testament to the writing in this that, that I had to go online, look up, okay, Wikipedia, uh, Crane, yeah, there he is. Wikipedia, Loveman, yeah, there he is. Wikipedia, mm-hmm. Croydon, why am I not getting any results? Go on Google. Why am I not? Oh, this person's made up. But, <laughs> but it's a testament to uh, the writer of the short story that he's mm-hmm. just as real as Lovecraft, Loveman, and Crane.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this story um, is actually uh, was originally written by Chapel back in 1984. And in this story, he utilized, as we've been discussing, a para parallel novel narrative technique in which he borrowed writers Lovecraft crane and Loveman uh, who became supporting characters to sterling Croydon's journey um, although as Nick indicated we don't hear a whole lot about Croydon uh, firsthand it's it's you know through 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 narrative or kind of like a, a yeah third person but um In his introduction to the story, uh, Mamta states that, quote, Where Tales is the best possible version of a story about H. P. Lovecraft, whose life was indeed very interesting. But there's no pulp hero, there's no world to save, or one worth saving. It is cult fiction about cult authors and the dubious immortality of literary fame. Most of us will be instantly forgotten. Lovecraft will hang on a bit longer than most. But how long? Um, I actually really enjoyed this story. I liked, and I always love alternate storytelling uh, that incorporates real characters. So for me, even though I wasn't familiar with Crane or Love Men, I was definitely hooked. Um, I enjoyed the story. I thought Chapel's writing uh, made it fun to read. It was visual. Um, but I also liked the psychological and um just that inclusion of kind of a different time period so for me uh it actually really worked and um as we've been discussing this was a story that really worked in terms of space travel and i would say even the hero's journey um but uh before i get going into space travel nick you know would you like to start our discussion on that well, real quick before before the space travel
1: thing, sure. one, one other thing to kind of point out is, yeah, one of the reasons that we picked this story along with uh, "You'll Never Be the theme is they both deal with event horizon themes of space travel. The but the two stories do it very differently. Um, the first story, as as we kind of dwelled upon, was very light on detail. We had to fill in the blanks. This story is too much detail. Um, it reads like not diary entries but it reads like nonfiction on this day on this time hp lovecraft arrived at this place and a cat got on his lap at this day and this time such and such happened it reads like fiction nonfiction and and it's it's heavy with the detail of of what the characters are doing where they are and and i think it almost has to be because like you said this this is a it's an alternate alternate history, parallel writing, you know, real characters doing, you know, fictitious things. So h- how do you sell that? How do you sell that lie that this truly happened? Well, you bury it in a whole bunch of other details. You know, in real life, you know, when you lie about something, how do you obfuscate it? You throw in a whole bunch of other details. It wasn't, you know... Did you take out the garbage? Yeah, I did. It was. Did you take out the garbage? Yeah, I did. It was really sunny outside. It rained a little bit. I said hi to to Mrs. Smith on the way to take the garbage out. No, that is is fabricated. You know, um, that's that's why when you lie, you shouldn't you know try to build a big nest of lies because they will start to unravel. But that's kind of what's going on here. I think is is the story is taking the opposite approach. Then you will never be the same. It's inundating you, you with details, characteristics, and real characters to help sell this you know, fictitious character of Sterling Croydon and what he did in the story. And and I, and I think it's extremely successful in doing that. Both of these stories, though, are, in my opinion, Event Horizon. The first one actually took place in space. This one takes place on Earth in the in the 20s. But, you know, uh, they, they both deal with the same concepts. Croydon's theory of getting uh, two points in space-time to kind of coincide basically mimics dr weir's point zero in event horizon um but what this story has that the other story doesn't have that event horizon does have is some gory gory gooey scenes of goreness that is gorely awesome
0: well now there there's one very good scene and i think you're gonna share that or a little bit
1: of it it is the money shot This is, you know, an event horizon when people are pulling out their eyes and hanging up by chains and stuff. There's that, you know, not that scene in here, but the equivalent of. And, again, this is the money shot. I love it. Um, and, And the thing is, a lot of Lovecraft writing wouldn't go to this level of detail because characters would probably faint before this even happens. In fact, even in this story, the character that witnessed this they say, but he was spared the the spectacle, <laughs> so we did, we get to see him, but the characters don't. And but,
0: but before you read that, yeah. I I think this this scene <laughs> even plays into your your selection of awe-inspiring stories that we've read because the the detail in this in the scene that you're going to read um, is very similar. In the detail that we have in, uh, my, in um, Tim Wagner's story.
1: It, it is. You know, it's just, it's very, yikes, but... Yeah, so, go for it. So, the money shot line. The dressing gown is ripped from Croydon's body, and he was blackening like a gardenia thrown into a fire. His skin and the layers of his flesh began to curl up and peel away petal by petal. A savage gust tore off his scalp, and the blood that welled there froze immediately, a skullcap of onyx.
0: Oh, isn't that just great? <laughs> it, but, but, you know, the thing is, it's
1: gory without being gory. I mean, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, he was cut in half and there was a blood spray everywhere and his arm was dangling there. It's actually kind of beautifully written, Written, you know, a gardenia tossed into the fire. I mean, it, it makes sense. Who are the characters in here that are not Croydon and Lovecraft to an extent, they're poets, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're poets, characters that write poetry. And even though Lovecraft, you know, wrote Fungi from Yuggie or whatever it's called, I'm going to get hate mail for that. Um, you know, it seems please like, please
0: don't hate Nick, <laughs> but,
1: but, you know, these are poets writing in a, you know, comprehending, trying to comprehend this sense of awe, this sense of something they could never see before in terms that they can do. Um,
0: it's in terms that they can kind of deal with and, and articulate their, their reality, what they're seeing in the world.
1: The, the prior story, the, the Iron Gods and all that stuff, how do you comprehend the incomprehensible? He, I mean, at a base level, this is someone who who's basically flash freezing to death. I mean, if you've seen the movie Whiteout... I don't remember the actress in that, but, you know, she touches a... She's down in Antarctica. She's a detective. She tries to open up a door outside, and her hand gets stuck to it, and she pulls off, and she, she gets frostbit on two of her fingers, and they have to be cut off, but her fingers are, are blacked and dead. You know, they've been flash-frozen. And, and, you know, that not, not to say that's a normal thing, because uh, we don't usually typically see that day-to-day, but it, it is a thing. It is a real thing. It, it's a thing that happens, but here is this scene of you open the door and all of a sudden spread in front of you is Antarctica and there's one of your friends sitting there in his gown and he's just being disintegrated by the subarctic uh temperature you know how do you comprehend that How how do you comprehend one wrong you know the temporal and spatial t- whatever mumbo-jumbo of you're seeing thing that you shouldn't see there, and two, how do you comprehend your friend just, like, vaporizing in front of you like that? You know, uh, that that's in a real-life type thing, you know, seeing like you're... Your, your best friend, your lover, your relative, you know, dying in your arms or whatnot. It's something we take for granted because movies romanticize it. This is not, I mean, it's romanticized without being romanticized. It's romanticized through language, Gardenia tossed in fire, but it's spared the, it's not sparing the, the juicy details of what, what he's witnessing. And it's, it's, again, uncomprehendable. There's two senses of awe going on here that and it's just cool. I'm sorry as as a as a horror as a let's just be honest, all of us out there, we read horror for a couple things, to get scared, but there is that carnivalesque aspect of we are entertained by this. And this is entertainment right here. We're
0: we're we're all secretly uh voyeurs of uh horror. But um I think the actress that you were trying to think of is Kate Beckinsale? Yes. Uh, was in Whiteout. Um, I also, uh, in in addition to the Event Horizon vibes, also uh, thinking of the visual of Dr. Weir uh, at the end of the film, where he is, he's just like this this de skinned person. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got that sense of awe that comes from the time traveler from H.G. Wells' 1895 novel, The Time Machine, um, where he's, where the time traveler uh, argues about a fourth dimension. And, um, you know, he says that he can basically go in this time machine from his very living room and just kind of sit and visit any part of the world. And really that that kind of concept is echoed in this story, that sense of awe, that sense, uh, again, that sense of time travel, um, that it eludes us, but didn't Croydon.
1: I do want to talk about that time travel aspect for a bit. This is something that I've been thinking about with this uh, story a bit, just because, again, this is a story that's kind of placed within real events, but it's a fictitious thing. And I've, I've I've written up a little thing here, so if it sounds like I'm reading something, it's because I am reading something, and it's kind of a scattered thoughts. But... The, the the sheer aspect of Croydon traveling to Antarctica at some time, I'm going to put that in quotes because that's not really revealed to us, this, that act kind of dispels a lot of stuff depending on how you take it. And it, once once you sit back and kind of armchair think about it, it's actually a very uh, neat thing. So just juggling chronologically here. So the, this the incident that Croydon... Uh, he's in his he's in his ha- his apartment, and he basically we don't know what he does. We know he does something with math that he thinks can uh, transport him to another time and place. He's done that, and the end result is his his interior of his apartment now exists where Antarctica is at some point. So this event is taking place sometime between 1922 and 1928. And I got the 28 number from Wikipedia because that's when Crane left for New York the last time before going to Paris. And that's all reality stuff. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like Crane moved between Cleveland and New York and other places between, you know, this time a lot. So you basically got a six-year period here. Now, Mountains of Madness, because there is some strong Mountains of Madness vibes here. Oh, just, yeah. Just, just by having mm-hmm. a- virtue of Antarctica here. And I think... Um, well, we'll get to that in a second here. Mountains of Madness was written in 31, and it takes place in 1930. The idea here being that Lovecraft probably got influence from Mountains of Madness from Croydon via Crane, even though it's, you know, bits and pieces, because when Crane is listening to Croydon's, you know, ranting and raving, he's both drunk and not paying attention. <laughs> so, which is kind of weird, you know, if you extrapolate as much as you can from that. But that's what the story is hinting at is, you know, the story kind of ends that after all this occurs, Lovecraft's writings, you know, uh, Dreams of the Witch House and other stories took on a more, you know, this attribute to it. So anyway, uh, so the idea here that this book is proposing is Croydon influenced Lovecraft via Crane. You know, Croydon is the one who's researching all the, you know, the, the old deities, the ancient civilizations, the ancient aliens <laughs> um, type thing. So anyway, so it's obvious that Croydon is in Antarctica. The question becomes when. So depending on your when, kind of has some weird butterfly effects. If he's in the present, wouldn't he have seen... Now again, the Miskatonic Expedition... From Mountains of Madness is is also fictitious, so it's not going to exist in the story. But if what Croydon is saying is true and it finds its way into Lovecraft stuff, and Lovecraft puts you know, interprets that into Mountains of Madness, that means in theory what Croydon should be seeing would be the same cyclopean cities, fossils, and life forms that the Miskatonic expedition would have seen. But he doesn't, and it's either a That stuff turns out to be bogus anyway, and Corinne's full of crap, or B, he's teleported to the wrong part of Antarctica. (laughs) Now, conversely, if he's not in the present in Antarctica, he's in the past. It kind of has the same uh, wheel. Either A, he didn't go back far enough, he's in the right space at the wrong time, or B, he is in the right space at the right time, and again, there's nothing but winter there, which not only throws Lovecraft's writings awry and debunks Croydon's own hypothesis, but also debunks general science, because at that point, you know, Antarctica existed on a big supercontinent called uh, Gondwana, and it was actually tropical, and there was life on it and stuff. So depending on where you think Croydon wound up, it has kind of repercussions of what influenced what and what, is real and not real so it's one of those kind of how do you juggle it type things i i'm of a a simple explanation he done he's done messed up (laughs) and he he's he's in antarctica at the wrong spot in antarctica that's that's i think that's probably what happened that's probably what the author intended but i like to think that you know, had he pulled it off, he probably would have been in Antarctica better prepared and seeing what the Miskatonic folks would have seen in Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness. And again, even though that story is fictitious, this stuff in theory would have been real because Croydon was saying it was real through his studies, which found its way to Lovecraft through Crane, and thus into Mountains of Madness. Does that make sense in the, you know, you put the maps and the strings on the wall type thing, <laughs> conspiracy theory?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And I I actually wonder um, when this story was written back in, you know, we're going to say 84, because that's when it was published, um, where Graham Hancock was in all of this story. because And I only say that because... He has hypothesized that uh, Antarctica had been a tropical locale, you know, more in, in modern times, you know, it, this is his, his theory, um, you know, which obviously comes after Lovecraft was writing about it in 1930-31. Um, but it does, I'm actually curious if any of Hancock's theories influenced Chapel's writing of this story. Actually, I I don't know, and um, I'd have to look it up.
1: T- time to hit the Wikipedia and the Googling. <laughs> right. a, c- a couple other points to, uh, that I do want to bring across. One of the things that's kind of, it kind of stood out in the story a little bit was uh, the posturing in the in the image that's important to these writers. Um, Chapel does spend a lot of time kind of. Uh, in the thoughts of these characters saying they want to present themselves a very specific way. Uh, you know, they want to be tall and stoic and mysterious and, and uh, you know, pre- how they present themselves and how they come off. Uh, it f- almost feels overtly dramatic, kind of like watching a, an anime where they have these long internal dialogues with themselves of, oh, if I do this, this will happen and that person will perceive this and so on and so forth. So it had that kind of feel to it that, Maybe that was incidental, but how, you know, appearances are extremely important to these weird writers and weird poets are, maybe they aren't, but to their legacy it is. Because, again, Mamatas opened up this story with uh, an introduction of, you know, most of us are going to be forgotten, Lovecraft will hang on for a while. Well, how do you stay relevant? Well, through through your output, but also, you know, were you quirky? Did you uh, dress a certain way? Were you a man about town? Or you know, so on and so forth.
0: I totally agree with you, Nick. And I I think uh, just briefly to touch on, you know, another way in which you can have sustainability over time is to create characters that are interesting and kind of hold your attention. And so uh, one of the themes that I wanted to touch on is the hero's journey into madness and death, which is not unlike what we discuss in the first story. Um, Croydon fills the shoes of a Lovecraftian character who's deeply attracted to the mysteries of the past, especially a past filled with ancient gods and aliens, um, as were, um, of course, Lovecraft, um, Crane, and Lovemen to to some degree, it sounds like, uh, earlier in the story. But not unlike what we've read in At the Mountains of Mountainous recently, um, and even the nameless city. Croydon's study leads him to hypothesize an ancient world in which humankind was subservient to the alien, um, the ancient or alien gods. Um, and I think that that is, you know, it, it follows in line uh, with Lovecraft's stories and, and continuing to further that mythos. Um, at some point um, in this story, which is not not revealed to us, Uh, man does become the dominant class. uh, For whatever reason, the ancient gods, you know, become dormant. Um, But Corden's discovery of space travel upsets the balance of knowledge, which I think is an interesting concept because, you know, for every step forward, there's always an alternate step. Um, And I think that that's the cost of knowledge and that there are benefits, but that there are also costs to it, Um, that we reveal something, but then through that revelation, something else is triggered as a result of that. And um, so, you know, Croydon, he took the gamble, and in his journey for knowledge and understanding, he slipped into madness and eventually death, which creates an interesting um, character in this story. But it also... um, you know, falls in line with those other Lovecraftian stories that uh, entertain are meant to be, you know, um, horrific in their cosmic vastness, um, and then also in a more personal uh, nature at our very base level. I just think that that was was an interesting concept to the story.
1: It's funny you bring that up because that concept of forbidden knowledge and what it does to you, the sto- this story ends very similarly uh, to Call of Cthulhu, um, where in Call of Cthulhu, the characters, as they gain more forbidden knowledge about how the universe works, uh, Elder Gods, Great Old Ones, Cthulhu, and so on and so forth, the gatekeepers of that knowledge uh, kill them off, you know, through a secret societies, conspiral. Uh, means whatever. I mean, so in Call of Cthulhu, see, Professor Engel gets killed off, uh, Johansson gets killed off, the narrator Thurston will eventually be killed off, um, because they're all privy to this uh, knowledge. Um, and the same thing is happening in this story, or these writers, where Croydon unearths this hidden knowledge, and through Crane is able to kind of disperse it around. Well, what happens? Well, you know, C- Crane mysteriously commits suicide by throwing himself off a boat. Um, you know, Lovecraft dies, you know, years later from intestinal cancer. Or do they, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea here being that... Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this god's name, but the god that is putting forth, De Zambu, and his agents are kind of orchestrating all this. And so the story... At least the very last, uh, you know, uh, bit of it is very much in line of Call of Cthulhu, and something we I think we've talked about on prior podcasts, and something I'm, I'm doing my own research on is it's a very Rene Girardian mimetic theory thing. Um, In Call of Cthulhu, the characters, as they gain knowledge, become more and more like the people who are stopping them, Um, and that's what's going on here. There's a little bit of, of as you start to imitate. Through mimesis of uh, these uh, characters, as in this case, the writers gain more knowledge. Um, you know, uh, at some point, you know, um, they, they come into conflict. You it, it turns to violence and it turns to death, and that's exactly what happens in Call of Cthulhu. And it's exactly what happens in this story. So there is some Girardian undertones <laughs> going on here. Uh, one thing I'm going to leave off on. Uh, since we're kind of coming up to the top of the hour, is aside from Call of Cthulhu, th- there's some, I want to make some connections to some other stuff that we've written with this story because it's, it's a, when you make a story that involves other writers, that leverages other writers' tropes or characters or motifs, whatever, it, it helps spin that kind of giant spider web of where do you branch out to and where can I explore. Um, i feel like the story has a lot in common with what we've read of james Chambers' work um and in fact uh we've interviewed chambers before and we've talked about you know his uh uh, stories from um the uh, infernal engine oh my god i forgot the name what that was called all of a sudden and on the night border and one of the things we came up with is he's kind of a when it comes to Lovecraft autourism, he borrows heavily from Dreams in the Witch House, which is, you know, using math to transport around. Almost all of uh, Chambers' characters, you know, disappear for, you know, days if not months at a time by basically cease to exist in this uh, dimension and popping back in a little bit later. Um, and so... Uh, I, I feel like there's some crossover there. And even Mama toss himself, you know, he just edited this collection. He, he's got some works that kind of tie into this. Um, he, he has uh, Walking with a Ghost from his People's Republic of Everything uh, story uh, collection, which is about uh, Lovecraft as a character. Now, in his story, it's a... Computer generated Lovecraft as a character, but it's still Lovecraft nonetheless. And you know, both this and Chapel are using Lovecraft to explore uh, different things. But also, um, with uh, Tom Sillick's Spirit Smasher, also from the People's Republic of Everything, uh, Lovecraft creates a fictitious writer, much like Sterling Croydon in this one, to explore various themes and motifs as well.
0: Um, Just to interject, um, the James Chambers was the Engines of Sacrifice. Engines
1: of Sacrifice. What did I say, Infernal Engine or something? I'm Uh, sorry, James Chambers. I have failed you.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been a while, so maybe uh, James needs to come back on and and, uh, have some more discussion. Um, I think uh, on that note, uh, we're going to turn to upcoming events. But before we do that, here's a little bit more from Hulse Classical piece Saturn. few upcoming events. First, we will have a new episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time streaming on Thursday, December 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific Coast time and available afterwards for download. In case you missed it, in November, our guest was comic book writer Michael Oden. He created and wrote the successfully crowdfunded series Elysian Fields. A link to this podcast is in the show notes. And on our next H.P. Lovecast, that'll be episode 35, we will discuss Jason Parent's new novella, Eight Cylinders, published by Crystal Lake Publishing this past autumn. This Lovecraft-inspired novella has been described by award-winning author Lee Murray as a, quote, wild mix of Fury Road, Dante's Inferno, and Lovecraftian horror. whip fast and oozing darkness, Monster lovers won't be able to resist this slick little read, end quote. This podcast will drop on Sunday, January 3rd. Copies of this novella can be purchased at Crystal Lake's website and through your favorite online booksellers. And in Episode 6 of H.P. Levcast Presents Fragments, we will interview Jason Parent about his new novella, as well as exploring a few of his other publications. The interview will post on Sunday, January 17th.
1: H.P. Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplevcast.com, and of course, you can email us at hplevcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Links to our books are in the show notes or look up our Amazon author pages. Michelle and I wish our listeners very happy holidays and Yuletide season. As always, thank you for listening.